0: On this episode of The Playbook, I have Dan Springer, CEO of DocuSign, and we're gonna talk about mathematical formulas of success, how to evaluate people, and even for luck. Join me for all this and more on The Playbook. This is Entrepreneur's The Playbook where each week I bring you some of the greatest athletes, celebrities, and entrepreneurs to talk about their personal and professional playbook to success and what made them champions on the field and in the boardroom. I'm your host, David Meltzer. I have a uh, Occidental alumni, most importantly, as I am, and President Obama. Uh, Dan Springer, CEO of DocuSign. DocuSign needs no introduction, neither does Dan Springer. Welcome to the playbook, Dan.
1: Thanks to have me, and the yo triumphant to all the tigers out there.
0: Right on. Well, your career is exceptional, and it's so much fun to see someone uh, exceed, excel in the business world from a small college. And so, I want to start because everybody talks about, including my three girls. You know, all the big schools, the Ivy League schools, and I think about all the things that I did in my career, from you know running. Uh, my first exit, you know, in the early 90s, $3.4 billion with West to running the you know, phone division at Samsung to Lee Steinberg Sports Entertainment. I go back to Occidental, what I learned on and off the field at Occidental. So I was curious, you know, everyone's down on colleges these days. Everybody wants to be an entrepreneur, uh, but you're well educated. You went to both the Harvard of the West, Occidental, and the Harvard of the East for MBA. Uh, <laughs> What were some of the lessons that you took from your college education at Occidental that you've applied through your entire career, but especially at DocuSign?
1: Well, you know, uh, Oxy was great for me uh, and I had a a fantastic opportunity there. One of the things I point out to people about the benefits of small liberal arts colleges uh, are all the standard things people talk about, about give you an opportunity to really learn how to think and to be in small settings with professors who take an interest in you and help really de- develop your, your thought processes and your writing skills, uh, which I think become you know, just invaluable going forward. But there's also a thing that I think is sometimes missed about um, you know, small schools. And you, know, you and I've talked about this in the past that uh, you go to Occidental and you, know, you had an opportunity to play sports. You to play football and, you know, I was the captain of the lacrosse team and the soccer team at Occidental. And, you know, anything but a division three school, uh, I wouldn't have been captain of either. Um, and so great opportunities. But from an academic standpoint, you know, I learned about the investment world because of the Charles R. Blight Fund. You know, fantastic place uh, at Oxy. Has, Stanford also has one, so it's not the only one, uh, but it's the first, you know, sort of program where students got to really invest real money uh, and actually understand, uh, the, the implications of that. And so you learn in a much more real way as an investment club when you're doing things like that. So again, I wouldn't have been the president of the Black Fund uh, you know, if I didn't have that opportunity at a smaller school. So I really do think it's an important piece. I will tell you, um, you know, that both of my boys, uh, one went to Penn, so one went to an Ivy League school at Wharton and the other is currently at USC. Um, but both of them visited you know, Oxy with me um, and you know, both of them went to small high school and decided they wanted to be at a bigger school, uh, which is great. Uh, but I was a little bit disappointed that they wouldn't have that same opportunity, uh, you know, to excel at some of the things when you get to that bigger school, uh, you don't get quite as many opportunities, uh, because it's just more students. So um, I'm a big fan and I do think liberal arts education, is, as you said, a little bit under fire, but, uh, I, I do believe, um, uh, it will, it will be a, a long-term enduring strength.
0: And I think the other aspect too, is understanding the giving back mechanisms. When you're in a smaller school, you get a better insight onto the impact that you can have internally at the school, but externally in the world, you have all these different things that you're exposed to people from around the world, even though you have 1500 or 1600 students, the exposure that I had had a great influence on my right. In fact, I wrote a book called compassionate capitalism based mm-hmm. off of an understanding of a bigger, larger purpose that you have and you can uh re- really grasp on and off the field uh, you're so involved in the corporate giving side of things and the philanthropy the philanthropy side of things um did that start before Occidental with your family or continue on through Oxy to Harvard onto your career you know at McKinsey when you first started out of school
1: yeah so it's interesting for me um I went to occidental and you know i didn't have any money so i didn't think about philanthropy very much i thought about trying to make money and even at the point where i was coming out of, of business school um, i don't think i had really developed a strong perspective of my obligation to give back financially um, and i always gave whatever it was 50 bucks or 100 bucks a year to oxy because i was i'd raised money i did calls when i was there at school so i felt a sense to get back but i didn't really think i could have a big impact um, but I, but I believe, as you said, the seeds were set there that said you have an obligation, you know, to support other people. Um, and so I just didn't ever think I could do it on a big scale. And I've been super fortunate now I'm able to do that. But I looked tell you, at Oxy, when I sort of got involved in more substantive giving, um, I got heavily involved with the Career Center. And I, I went back into just what you did. I looked at the places that I thought, hey, where can I help and where are there places where I think the school could be a stronger you know, college. And one of my thought was helping young people really get started. I was fortunate the things I studied led me uh, to to relatively easily get interviews and jobs. But a lot of my classmates didn't have that. And I didn't, I don't think liberal arts colleges have done enough of that investment in the career center. So when we built the new career center, I worked with uh, the school in doing that and um, was thrilled to be able to give back in that way. But so I set the seeds, I think, as opposed to really launching me because I just didn't have the resources at the time to do um, some of the philanthropy I do today.
0: And you've carried a lot of these things forward into such a successful venture at DocuSign. I think you have over a million customers now, a huge impact on the way people do business. You know, I left Occidental, went to law school, and I don't think, you know, there's one company in the world that has a greater impact next to Westlaw in the legal profession than Mm -hmm. DocuSign or in the real estate field where I do a ton of investing as well. For you, you know, coming in as CEO in 2017 with a varied uh, background of experience, what were some of the things that you thought about in 2017 that here after the pandemic that you never thought would be a reality? Or maybe it just was an accelerated reality because DocuSign, obviously you could it was set up to be successful in 2017, but you took it to a whole new level.
1: Yeah, it's funny, I, uh, there's a lot of parts of my career where I have some pride and say, you know, I really built something. And at DocuSign, um, it's really less the case, David. I, uh, well, I think I've been a good steward. I think that's exactly what I've been. I think you hit the nail on the head when you said, this is a company that was set up to have an amazing impact on companies and an amazing uh, impact on the market in general, as you talked about sectors like real estate and legal, uh, that it's just hard to imagine them today. Uh, without the e-signature capability that you know sign pioneered, so I joined in a place the company had some work to do. There was some sort of, I call it maybe some light cleanup uh, activities to be ready to scale the way we have scaled, and we had to put some structures in place uh, to be the growing concern we are today. But the core technology platform was there. The customer understanding, even not not a million customers, but the, the small number of customers we had at the time understood the value and the success their business has got. So that was all teed up. It was really just sort of support. My job has been much more to support the growth than it really has been to dramatically innovate. Um, so, you know, it's great when you get a chance. Uh, yeah, I feel very lucky when you get a chance to, to only have to do that scaling as opposed to really grow, you know, kind of innovate uh, and, and germinate. Uh, the idea. So DocuSign was set up pretty well. But I will tell you the next step for us in building out the DocuSign Agreement Cloud, I'm finally going to get my chance to do my share of the work. Uh, We have an opportunity to take a fantastic product, any signature, and turn it into the next big cloud opportunity. Um, If I do that, if we're successful with that, then I'll be able to say I had a, a part of the innovation too.
0: Which I'm sure you'll do a great job with. Now, beyond the core business though, are always the core values. And, you know, coming in as CEO, we always have our own perspective of those values. Um, You know, I would say the two hardest part, people ask me about being a CEO of a big company. I always say employees and overhead uh, (laughs) because one I care so much about and the other just stresses everyone out. (laughs) Uh, How did the core values evolve over the last four years since you've uh, been the steward of that great technology? It's very, you know, a lot of challenges on values today in any company, let alone a bigger company. How have you been able either to maintain or to grow or change the core values at DocuSign?
1: Yeah, you know, interestingly, uh, one of the things that attracted me to DocuSign is that when I first started spending time with folks in a more serious way uh, back in uh, 2016. Uh, was how much the values that the company had already. They might not have been codified very well, but they really resonated clearly with me and across the company that this is what the company was about, and they were very consistent with my own and what I built at Responses, the last company, uh, last public company I ran before uh, selling it to Oracle. And so for me, um, it wasn't so much about changing them. There was, as I said, a little bit of a codification requirement, um, and then I think there was an amplification. Requirement as we've gotten bigger, uh, it's it's more challenging, of course, to keep uh, those values alive. For us, it was really a sense of saying DocuSign is a super happy place. You look at our glass door scores; I mean, they're just off the charts. I sometimes joke it's the Disneyland of corporate America, the happiest place on earth. <laughs> uh, working at DocuSign, and it is a fantastic place. Not that we don't have lots of challenges and things that I need to make better, uh, but but it's a pretty it's a pretty special place. And we really came back to this idea that hey, we, we were focused on customers and driving customer success. And we really wanted to make it a place that people could do what we call the work of their lives. Um, and that we built an organization to say that managers need to be committed to making each of their employees realize that vision of doing the work of their lives. And if we get that right, the, the values we came up with around trust and responsibility. Um, and then the last one is kind of unusual. And sometimes it's awkward for people to talk about it, but we talk about docu-love. And people say, "Ooh, corporate value, you know, docu-love, how, what does that mean? And if you spend time in the company, you'd say, oh, yeah, it makes total sense. And it's because employees love working there. But importantly, they love working there because our customers love using DocuSign. And that is what fuels the, the, the whole positivity at DocuSign is that customers love it. And our customers' customers, the ones we call the users, they love using the product. It makes everyone smile to use DocuSign and they get to tell you how it's better than the old way. And so we have a million customers, as you said, that people will pay us, but over a billion people have signed to DocuSign. So the reach is fantastic. That DocuLove, we spread it you know, uh, pretty broadly. Uh, and those are the things that I think are special about the values.
0: That is a lot of love and I am a DocuLover as well. I hope that's not too awkward for the podcast, but more importantly, <laughs> um, when you're growing at that pace, uh, especially now with the pandemic, you know these core values are hard to maintain unless we're hiring the right people. And in order to hire the right people, we have to have a formula to evaluate them. And I've evolved over 35 years of my own experience as an executive in 20 years, making huge mistakes uh, through hiring, uh, come up with my own system. Do you have a formula or a system to evaluate people as you're bringing them on?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think everyone has, um, you know, their kind of intuitive things when they're, when they're chatting with people and thinking of bringing them on and bringing them on and helping evaluate them and helping them grow. It doesn't end at the hiring date. Um, I, at one point, spent some time trying to, you know, sort of put that down on paper in what I consider a somewhat geeky, but nifty formula, uh, where I've codified it. There's sort of three core factors I look for. Uh, people need to have the skills and the smarts to be effective in our you know, rapidly changing and, you know, rapidly growing environment. Um, and people need to have ego management. You know, it's really important that people can really suppress their own interests for the values of the company and of our customers. And so people who can kind of control their egos and work for the team as opposed to just for themselves is key. And then the third one is just old-fashioned, how hard you work. Um, and I created a little formula, again, a little geeky, but you take those skills or smarts, the S, you divide them by the ego because you want that ego number to be lower. And then you raise that that quotient to the power of how hard you work. And so it's exponential to work. I think that's the piece that at the end of the day, as long as you have that ratio, right, that your skills and your smarts are not being overpowered by your ego, it's how much you bring you know, bring to the company every day. And so I think about that a lot when I interview people and I have questions that I ask people around each of those components. And then of course, references are, are, are a key part of that as well to understand whether people really check uh, those three boxes.
0: I love that and you know, hard work, Being something that you're accountable for, Uh, as I remember back from our college days, being in a smaller school, uh, you couldn't just slide by with the smaller classes and the accountability that was necessary and playing sports. And you played two sports as well, like myself. But it's amazing, you know, because we made these choices. We both went to a school with no money, uh, with a great uh, vision of ourselves and through the accomplishments that we've had. One of the words that come up a lot is how lucky we are. And I like to say I'm blessed, but, you know, luck to me has a mathematical formula as well. I know it's probably an Occidental thing that we're a little geeky when it comes <laughs> to you know, I say attention plus intention equals coincidence uh, and utilizing your formula. I, I'm going to take that to heart as too and come up with some mathematical quotient of my luck. Um, how does luck interplay? Uh, in your career, because you have had, what, 18, 19 years as a CEO of extraordinary companies. You're having extraordinary success again at, you know, a a loving company like DocuSign. Uh, For you, how's luck interplayed with your success?
1: What's interesting, I I tend to use the word serendipity more than luck, although they're probably pretty interchangeable. You know, David, for me, I think it's been primarily around two things. One of is access to opportunity. Um, and most of my serendipities that I showed up in Silicon Valley, you know, when I left McKinsey, um, I mean, I've been here prior in San Francisco, but, but came into Silicon Valley in terms of the tech space uh, in the late 90s. Um, and it's just been 20 years of, you know, the, the literally the most unprecedented growth, I think, in, in the history of the world uh, in terms of the, the professional opportunity here. Uh, and so, right place, <laughs> right time is a big part of it. Um, and then the second thing for me is I have been really fortunate to have people uh, bet on me, uh, bet on me at times when I might say, I'm not sure my body of work has justified, uh, but they you know they, you know that opportunity. They saw something in me and they were willing to work with me and bet on me. Um, and and the combination of those two things is where it really come from. And it's funny, I did a, a talk literally this morning with Ken Frazier, who's the outgoing you know CEO of Merck, an amazing uh, executive. And, you know, he talked about having a very different background than mine growing up in inner city in Philadelphia. But it was the same story. He was talking about the opportunities that people afforded him. Uh, And and we had a fun conversation about this idea that we kind of had a parallel sort of situation. His was lower probability to have occurred. So he had, I guess, more luck than I did. Uh, But at the same at the end of the day, I go, I don't know, you either get the opportunities or you don't. Um, and I, I've been, you know, really, really fortunate. I would tell you, being in the valley the last, you know, twenty couple of years, there's also opportunities that I almost did um, that turned out to also be amazing. So I don't think it's that, you know, the two or three successful, you know, public uh, company, you know, taking companies public gigs that I've had is that I was batting a thousand. Uh, I think the scenarios there's a bunch of different things, and a lot of them could have been successful, which is why I go back to where you do and say you know what, I've been in the right place with the right opportunities made available to me uh, more than, than just my own execution.
0: Yeah, and with that desire that you must be what you can be uh, sure helps as is applied to all those opportunities that are, you know, availed us. Um, one of the interesting things in, in your playbook as well, which is very rare, you've had extraordinary success there in the Silicon Valley. I was blessed to be there in the mid 90s, late 90s. Um, and if it wasn't for Lee Steinberg, I probably still would be up there. But who, who could pass up being and working with Jerry Maguire? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and Warren, exactly. And Warren Moon, by the way, who's been my partner for 12 years. But were you actually a stay at home dad as well for four years when your kids were in college? Is that true? Uh, high school. I mean, uh, high school. school. That makes more sense. And, and, you know, that's the most interesting, you know, for me, playbook is, you know, I believe in non negotiables in my life. I have four children and, you know, most people probably read that and go, are you kidding? How could he give? And in my mind, where I am at 53 years old, I'm like, oh, my God, I'm so jealous. Like, how could he have the, the, you know, the wherewithal of his own values to to take advantage of that opportunity to be at home when your kids are in high school? Um, How difficult, number one, was the decision and and what did you base it off of?
1: So, um, you know, talk about serendipity or luck. Uh, amazingly it was the easiest probably professional decision I've ever made and I would probably argue the best one um my situation the, the setup was I was the CEO of responses public company uh I became a single dad full-time dad with two two sons uh one one at time one in middle school one just going into high school um and you know I wasn't doing probably a great job at either the CEO gig or the or the full-time uh dad gig you know passable at each Um, And the company got bought by Oracle and um, Oracle said, if you want, you can go. And it just, you know, Safra, Katz and I chatting about it. And all of a sudden I thought to myself, wait a minute, this is crazy. This is exactly what I want. I just never thought about it though. I never thought I would give myself permission uh, to step back from a career, which was, was, you know, horribly short-sighted. I just, that's how I'd been conditioned, right? Is that you get up every day and you go to work. And that's what you have to do for your kids—is you show them what hard work is, um, and that, and that's what you are as an example, you know, as a father, you know, to your sons. Um, but then when I was given the opportunity, I looked at it and I said, "This is going to be amazing," and it was transformative, and it was amazing. And I got to go. I mean, I still—I joined some boards. I worked a little bit with a private equity firm. I didn't do zero, but I worked nine to five. I made breakfast every morning, dinner every night. I made it to every lacrosse game, every soccer game. Every basketball, I just, I went to everything uh, and just fully, you know, was there to, I think on the one hand, it was selfish and that I loved it. And again, the fact that my kids happened to play uh, the sports that I've played and like, that was a nice coincidence. So I could enjoy it. Um, but I also think I was there for them in a way when, you know, high school can be tricky, you know, for young men or, or boys trying to become young men. And I think I was able to be there and support them in ways that would never be able to get back again. So I think you're spot on. You, you would be fortunate if you could create that opportunity. It's not trivial, but if the stars align, I would recommend it to anyone uh, that is fortunate enough to have that flexibility. Uh, it was it was, it was was literally the, the best period of, of my adult life.
0: Oh, I can't imagine. And uh, it is something I look at. I do have an 11 year old beyond my three older daughters who my oldest graduated from college and told me that I should be grateful for her because she taught me how to be the dad that I am today and that my youngest son, 11, is the yeah. huge <laughs> beneficiary of all the things that she sacrificed to teach uh, me about my exactly. a dad. Uh, I will admit that it's much easier to like uh, baseball and football for me uh, than cheerleading, um, but <laughs> yes. I, I did the best I could and I learned a lot of great lessons. <laughs>
1: yeah. I heard swimming question. is worse because swimming, you have to be there all day long oh, just for those two minutes of watching
0: your kids. Watch. Oh, it is loud and it's inside. Oh my gosh, Uh, it's amazing. All right, last question, because we both share something else besides Occidental. Um, I also am on the board of Boys and Girls Club uh, here in Southern California. You have done so much as well, not to just give back to your community, to your family, um, but, but also to the future generations. How important is that legacy of giving back, especially to the Boys and Girls Club?
1: Well, you know, I think we get to these different phases in our life. And I told you, hey, early on, uh, not only did I not have some of the sensitivity of ego management that I would have today, which is appropriate, you know, a young person coming out of school focused on their career is going to have that. Uh, and on the philanthropy side, same thing. Like I knew I wanted to do my part, but I never thought I should be a leader on that front until I found myself with a lot you know, more resources. So I, I can't tell you that, you know, it's some goodness in my soul. It was just the realization over time that it's my responsibility and you know my obligation. So it's sort of two core things I've done. One is I did create uh, a fund that I work with my sons uh, to give the money away. So it's a Springer boys uh, fund. And we were able to fund that with a fair amount of money from the responses success initially. Um, and every, twice a year, we sit down and pick the charities that we're gonna support. And we also tend to work and say, one of us needs to be heavily involved if we're gonna make a large donation. Actually, the way I got involved with the Boys and Girls Club is that my younger son, uh, Robert was a volunteer there. And he started volunteering there. We started giving them some money. I started noticing what they were doing and realized I thought it was a hugely important part of our community in San Francisco. I ended up joining the board. Uh, and then just this last year, we announced we're building a new Boys and Girls Club in um, the Sunnydale neighborhood near Cal Palace, which is one of the few, San Francisco's pretty fortunate city. It's one of the few neighborhoods that we really have left behind. Uh, and we need to do more to support. So I'm excited. We're uh, kicking that uh, the building off this uh, this quarter. And I think it's going to be a, a, a fantastic facility uh, for children in San Francisco. I, for me, I mean, I, I've actually made a decision a couple of years ago to say that I'd like to try to provide more leadership to other people in thinking about philanthropy, particularly in tech. And so I now give away um, 100% of my all my new stock grants. Uh, don't worry, I saw plenty of DocuSign stock from when I first joined, in case you were worried about me. Uh, I was, David. Uh, <laughs> but yes, yeah, so and every year I just give 100% of that away uh, to build in the communities where we have people. So, Boys and Girls Club was the first one. We're building a homeless shelter in uh, Seattle, a place called Mary's Place. Next, then I'll hit Chicago. Then I'll hit Dublin each year. I'll just pick another one and take 100% of those resources uh, to support uh, those communities. And I think it's a hopefully a model other people decide they want to follow and say yeah it's something powerful about saying all of it um, because you have because you already got plenty so it, it doesn't mean it doesn't matter to you really so get out of you can still do the scorekeeping compare yourself to other CEOs and say look I got this 15 million dollar grant or a 20 million dollar grant or whatever it is look how special I am but I don't need to keep it because uh, it's not going to change my life and it could really help the communities that quite frankly have supported our success so that's kind of how I think about it
0: Well, knowing how you lead, the future uh, community centers that you build and other facilities are going to be bigger and bigger and greater and greater because those grants are going to be greater and greater for your <laughs> success that Let's you know, hope so. uh, those dublin city and they're going oh thank god we're not getting the money now we're going to get some real money uh <laughs> yeah. thanks dan. and Dan, i will tell you you know as a sports person myself you're now on my top three lists all-time lacrosse players so it goes jim brown paul rabel and then dan springer yeah. uh, I bet you, when you went to occidental you never thought you'd be on the top three of dave melcher's sports lacrosse players so
1: that, i yeah. never did and I, I don't unfortunately know jim but i'm friends with paul rabel and i I think he's great so being on the same list of anything with paul rabel uh i'm i'm honored i'll send you a picture of the two of us together
0: that's awesome yeah he is one he does remind me of you and you both are just people who big hearts big minds and open hands uh which are three things i look for in everybody dan springer i can't tell you what a pleasure it's been to meet you i look forward to doing more with you what an extraordinary entrepreneur and philanthropist you are and just uh, someone, a milestone person in my life that I can look to see for my children and how we can even do better uh, for others. And I appreciate that. CEO of DocuSign, Dan Springer. Well, I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of The Playbook as much as me. On a personal note, I just wanted to thank everyone for making The Playbook such a success. Don't forget to continue it by sharing, subscribing, and listening to your favorite episodes. This is Dave Meltzer with The Playbook.